And we're going to be talking about being consecrated as a holy priesthood. I'm extremely blessed to be able to share with you. And we're going to be jumping around a little bit, but primarily tonight we're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Exodus. Um, it's a little bit different from where we've been um, a lot of the times recently, but, but I think the Lord has some tremendous things to show us tonight through that. So um, before we get there, we're going to start in 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll go ahead and read the first five verses, and then we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll start talking about a few things. So 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, coming to him as to a living stone, Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we come before you once again and we just ask your blessing upon this time. We pray that you would anoint and fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would be completely attuned to you, to everything that you desire to speak and to share with us tonight through your word. We pray, Father, that you would give me your words and not my own to speak, and that we would all be completely receptive to the leading and guiding of your Holy Spirit. We do lift up Pastor Charlie and Ceci as they make their way to Alabama. We pray, Lord, your blessing upon their trip, that it would just be a wonderful, refreshing time, and, Lord, that you would take care of all of the, the little hassles that have taken place already, Lord, that you would get their luggage there safely, and, Lord, that they would just be able to enjoy the time with family. We pray also that you would bring them home safely back to us and that you would continue to use Pastor Charlie as the leader of this church. And we just ask your blessing upon this time and we ask and pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. So one of the most interesting things, I think, as far as titles go, is that we are called priests, that we are chosen we are chosen to be a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood as well. And, and to me, that, that's just a, a very, very strange thing to think about. I know that when I have introduced my, myself to family of friends, a lot of times they, being from where we're at in the country, being very, very predominantly Catholic in many ways, a lot of people still refer to me as priest. Hey, is your friend the priest coming? And I try to explain that there's a difference, try to explain that I'm a pastor. And, and, and really what I've come to is, I guess I am a priest, but not in the, the typical sense. But biblically, I am a priest, and so are you if you know Jesus Christ. Because it says here, therefore, laying aside all of these things, all these terrible things, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, then as newborn babes desire the milk of the word that you may grow thereby, that we would continually and constantly grow in the word of God. But then he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, now coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. So talking about Jesus Christ, that we come to him, this living stone, this rock, our fortress, our refuge, our redeemer, that we come to him as a living stone because he's not dead, he's not in the grave, he's been raised up. And so we come to him who is chosen by God and precious, and we also are the same. In verse 5, he says, You also as living stones are being built up a, spir a spiritual house, a temple, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And, and the word there that 
comes right before priesthood, holy. It's one of those things that, that as Christians, we toss that word around a lot. You know, to be holy, to be set apart, to be sanctified, to be consecrated unto God. And we're going to talk a lot about that tonight. But he says that we've been called to be a holy priesthood for a purpose. And that purpose is to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is part of our reasonable service. This is what's expected of us as children of God, as Christians. He says that we are a holy priesthood. But then later on, if you jump down a few verses to verse 9, it says, You are also a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy." And so he goes through all these different things that we are, and he says that we are a chosen generation. And that's one of those things that, that we've talked many, many times before, that we constantly look for the return of Jesus Christ. The apostles did it when they were alive, and then that's been something that we have passed down generation upon generation, understanding that each generation, we are still a chosen generation. And then he says a royal priesthood. Back in the times of, of, of Jesus and before that, and even to a certain degree afterwards, the, the two titles of being royal and being priesthood, those things were, were diametrically opposed. Those were things that you did not mix because royals were, were on one side of the aisle and the priesthood, the, the Levites, they were on an entirely different plane. And so never in the tween should they meet. And yet in Jesus Christ, those two became one. And as he did that for, for us, He's now called us to be the same, to be a part of that family and to be a part of that inheritance, but also to be a part of that calling, a part of that ministry. So a royal priesthood. And then he says, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you. And then in verse 10, he says, who once were not a people. We were not a people in the sense of the way the Israelites were. You know, as you read through the Old Testament, what do you see? You see the Israelites and then you see everybody else. Yes, they all have names, and we talk about the different names and the, all the ites, the Amalekites, the Jebusites, the Edomites, and all these ites that are there. But really, when you would talk to a Jew, someone from Israel, it was the children of Israel and the Gentiles. Everybody else was bunched up together. They weren't a nation. Everybody else was just bunched together. But now we have been separated. We've been called to be a part of that inheritance. We've been called to be a part of now his own special people. And we are the people of God. And then he says, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And I love the fact that Peter talks about having obtained mercy as he's talking about being a priest. Because that is something that as you go through the Old Testament, and we're going to do that tonight, you start to see the consecration of the first priesthood, the consecration of Aaron and his sons. You start to see the need, the absolute necessity for mercy before we are able to do anything on behalf of our God. Before we are able to embark on any type of ministry. And for the purpose tonight, I need you to understand that ministry doesn't just mean being paid to be on staff here. Or being a volunteer in the children's ministry or the worship team or whatever else. Being involved in ministry, to be a part of the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's something that's for all of us. Everybody that is a child of God is also a part of this royal priesthood. 
And so he goes through and he says that, that they have, they've obtained mercy, that we have obtained mercy. Mercy, as we've talked about many, many times before, is when we deserve a much greater punishment than what we actually receive. Our greatest opportunity to obtain mercy was when we first came to know Jesus Christ. It's something that we still partake of, hopefully day by day, as the necessity arises. But that first opportunity, when all of those sins that had gone unrepented, unconfessed, unchanged, unforgiven, when all of those things were laid down at the foot of Jesus, at the foot of the cross, to be able to receive and obtain that mercy. But it's an ongoing thing because we are an imperfect people. But he talks also about being a special people, his own special people. Museums and Hall of Fames, you have all of these random objects. You know, you, nowadays it's not even just museums and Hall of Fames. Nowadays you can look up on eBay and you can buy somebody's underwear from the World Series that they won 20 years ago. Or the jock strap from this, that, or the other. Or somebody's gum that they were chewing and they spit out right before a famous speech. There's all sorts of these random, just mundane things that have now become special because of who they were attached to. And that's us. We are all mundane, ordinary people, but we are special because of who we're attached to. There's a song that we sing a lot that, that I really, really love. It's called Satisfied in You, and it talks a lot about John chapter 15 and abiding in the vine and being a part of that. And that is what gives us any kind of worth, any kind of value, any kind of claim to being special. But he says his own special people. We've been made special by the Almighty God. So what does it mean then to be sanctified, to be consecrated, to be set apart for the work of ministry, to be set apart for this royal priesthood? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, it says, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And so he goes through and he's talking here about taking account of our lives. Being aware of everything that happens. You know, having gone through different classes for business and, and for finance, one of the greatest things that you can ever learn in regards to that is that you need to be accountable. That's where we get the whole theory of accounting. We get that whole world, that business world of accounting. Because you need to know where everything came from and where everything went. You need to be accountable of all of it. And it's the same kind of understanding when it comes to being a child of God. Is that we have to be accountable. We have to understand why we did what we did. And then we have to understand how to correct the mistakes that we made. And so we are constantly called to be accountable of these things. And it says, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Not just in the conduct as it relates to being a child of God within a church. Not just as it relates to your conduct when you're getting together in a Bible study. Not just as it relates to your conduct when you're being an example for those within the body. But he says, in all your conduct. In all our conduct, we are called to be holy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, Paul is talking about something very similar in, in regards to our conduct and how we should carry out our lives. And he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? 
for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And so many people try to take this verse passage out of context and try to apply it to this, that, and the other. But the reality of it is this is an all-encompassing thing. When we talk about the body and the spirit, that means everything. All that we are, when we, when we pray that, it's not just something that, that I like to toss out. It's something that I pray often when we are gathered together and we're in closing. One of the things that, that you'll often hear me pray is that we would just be able to give everything that we are unto the Lord. We commit everything that we are unto you. And that has to be a way of life. That can't just be words that we say when we get together in church or words that we sing in a song. It needs to be something that we actively practice. That everything that we do, we're conscious and aware of the effect that it can have on others. We're going to see the effect of Aaron's actions in a little bit. Aaron was probably one of the, one of the leaders or the alphas that never wanted to be a leader or an alpha. You know, Moses was tough enough. You know, Moses had the stuttering problem, and Lord, I, I can't go. You know, call somebody else and send Aaron with you. And so Aaron goes with him. And then Aaron is in the same boat. Aaron has all sorts of personal issues. You know, and we could get into all those different things. But tonight we're just going to focus on his particular actions as he related to leading the children of Israel before he had been consecrated. And the consequences of those actions, being accountable for those things. So the first thing that we're going to do now is we're going to get all the way back to Exodus chapter 20. So if you'll turn there, Exodus chapter 20. And this is going to kind of set the scene for us as far as what's taking place with the children of Israel. Just to give you a a little bit of a recap for, for the first 19 and a half chapters. Moses has come on scene. You know, Moses went through all the things in his own personal life about how he wasn't ready, about how he was saved as a child. And then he became a, an Egyptian. Then he killed another Egyptian because he saw the Egyptian killing a, an Israelite. Then he goes through in, in hiding. Then God calls him back. He has the whole burning bush experience. He goes through all the plagues. He brings them all out of Egypt. And they cross the Red Sea. And they've done all of these amazing things through the power of God. And then they get to this place, there's no water, they're, they feel like they're going to starve, the people start complaining, Moses goes to the Lord, the Lord tells him what to do, he strikes a rock, water comes out of a rock, miraculous things taking place. And so now we get to Exodus chapter 20, verse 18, and more miracles are taking place. It says, now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. And then they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. And so this is kind of like a constant and recurring theme for the children of Israel is this admonition, this reminder, hey, 
it's probably not going to be good when you start following after all these idols, when you start making all these other things, because they knew, they knew better. They had seen the glory of God from afar off, but they couldn't, there's no way that they could deny it. You know, this was before the time of all the pyrotechnics and all the special effects and CGI and all the cool stuff that we've got nowadays. This was God doing all of this before man even thought of it. And the people are trembling. They can't believe all these things are taking place. And so this is just a small, small representation of what God can do. And they were already afraid. They were deathly afraid, fearfully afraid, so much so that the people speak to Moses and they tell him, look, you talk to us and we'll listen to everything that you tell us God told you, but don't, don't let God speak to us. Don't let God speak to us directly because we know that we are going to die. The people were afraid of God because they knew his holiness and his might in comparison to their sinfulness and their frailty. They had a great understanding at this moment in time. They had a great understanding of who they were and who God was. And that's just like us, right? For all of us here who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there was a moment, that first moment when you really knew and understood who Jesus was, your need for him, and you accepted him as your Lord and Savior. You asked for him to take control of your life because that's what it means when you ask for him to be Lord and Savior, for him to be the leader of your life. That when he says, go do this, you say, yes, sir. That when he says, I'm going to lead you into this, you say, I'm willing to follow. When we first had that, there was that complete understanding of our standing in Christ. Knowing that he had to be Lord and Savior, that it wasn't just enough to pay him lip service, that he was and is the Almighty God. And that we respected him that way. But then that kind of wore off for the children of Israel as it does oftentimes in our lives, I would suggest. Moses leaves for 40 days. Now, 40 days might not seem like a lot to some of you. It might seem like an eternity to others. To the children of Israel, this was an eternity. They felt like 40 days, who knows what could have happened to this guy. Because in Exodus chapter 32, Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed from coming down the mountain, that the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. We do not know what has become of him. They literally, 40 days prior, had just had this awesome experience at what you would call maybe the, the foot of God. They're at the bottom of this mountain, and at the top of the mountain, they have all of these things taking place that scare them so much that they tell Moses, look, Moses, you go talk to God, and whatever he tells you to tell us, we'll listen. We'll follow everything that he says. Just don't let God come down here because we are all going to die. And then over the course of 40 days, they lose that awe and respect for God. They totally lose it. 40 days later, because now they say, you know what, 40 days is gone. We don't know where Moses is at. He's probably dead. So come on, Aaron, make us some gods. How foolish is that? He said, come make us some gods. And so Aaron, in verse 2, said to them, break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. 
So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Now it's important that we see a couple of things here. The first one is that there are multiple steps to this process. This was not one of those things that he could turn around later on and say, you know what? I just fell into this. I don't know what happened. I wasn't thinking. I wasn't paying attention. And, you know, I, I just took a wrong turn. He took several wrong turns to get to the final product. Several wrong turns. And they were knowing turns. Because notice what it said there, that he fashioned it with an engraving tool. That means, you know, it's almost like whittling wood. Like he, he made this idol. This was not something that just kind of happened. You know, the, the, the paintings, that they just splatter paint on the wall, and oh, wow, it's a masterpiece. That wasn't what happened. He actually took time to mold it, to engrave it, to make it into an actual image. This was knowledgeable. He did this intentionally. And then the people said at the end of verse 4, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. One more wrong turn for Aaron. He saw it. He, he made it. All of this stuff. The people start to bow down to it. So then what does he do? Well, let's go with the flow. Why are we going to rock the boat? So he says, he sees it. He builds an altar before it. And Aaron makes a proclamation. And he says, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. So they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In my mind, this is almost like uh, a Saturday morning. You know, I, my kids, already five, three, and one, well, the one-year-old never has to get up to go to school, so she wakes up in a great mood every day. But the five and the three-year-old on a school day, oh my goodness. It doesn't matter what time they went to bed the night before. It doesn't matter how long the nap was the day before. It doesn't matter how many times that they have overslept. Every morning is the same thing. I don't want to go to school. I don't want to get up. Why are, you, why are you making me? Every day, every day. And then my son, his, his latest catchphrase, stop telling me all the things. Stop telling me all the things that I have to do. Stop telling me all the things. Saturday morning comes, and like as soon as the sun comes up, they're up. And, and it's time to play. It's time to hang out. You know, can we watch TV? What are you going to make me for breakfast? And that's the picture here. Aaron makes this proclamation. They went from, we don't know what's gone on with Moses. He's probably dead. We're all going to die out here to, hey, we're going to have a feast tomorrow. And so everybody gets up early the next day, and then they go and they have this feast. And in other translations, we get a, a much clearer picture, and it's an understanding that this is a drunken feast. This is a revelry. This is like a wild, out-of-control party that they're having in the name of the Lord as they're worshiping a golden calf. Okay, there's a lot, a lot of bad things that are taking place with this. But the first thing for us is that patience is an absolute necessity for a child of God. Patience is an absolute necessity for a child of God. Forty days, if they had waited just one more day, Moses would have been back. And they would have avoided all the things that are about to take place. But 40 days was too long for them. And isn't that the case with us so many times? We, we hold out, we hold out, we hold out, and just before God would have had a tremendous victory in our lives, we lead ourselves into defeat. All because of a lack of patience. 
Patience is even more important, though, when we are ministering to others on behalf of God. Patience is so much more important as we are ministering to others. So the people didn't have patience, but this is where Aaron had the opportunity to step in and to lead the people in the right direction. And he missed the opportunity. He missed the opportunity because he was lacking the patience as well. Aaron's actions here required thought and time at multiple stages. So this was a conscious sin. This was something that he knowingly did despite the fact that God prepared a way of escape, multiple ways of escape for him at every turn. And again, that is just like our lives. There are multiple opportunities, I would believe, because I've seen it in my own life, and I I would have to believe that it's the same for everybody else, that it's not, when God says that, that he has prepared a way of escape for us, it's not just one way. God has prepared multiple ways. So when we fall into sin, to use that word, it's almost always knowingly. It's something that we chose to do, and we chose to ignore all of the different opportunities that we had to turn away, all the different opportunities that we had to prevent the consequence that was going to come from that error. And before you say, well, Aaron didn't know yet. Aaron, Aaron was still an, an ignorant person when it came to, to the knowledge of God. You know, Moses was going up, and over the course of those 40 days, that's when he got the Ten Commandments. That's when he, he learned all the different rules and regulations. I would suggest to you that that's not really the case. Because in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, it says, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So this had already taken place. They may not have gotten every single detail about the commandments and what was going to take place for all of the different offerings, for the the building of the tabernacle, for all of these different things. They may not have gotten all the details, but they got this one. They already knew this one. And God had made it a point to point that out specifically and in detail. You know, I I love the fact that, that God told them, it's not in the air, it's not on the ground, it's not under the earth, it's not in the water. Basically, if there's anywhere that you could find it, it is not that. Do not make any other images. Do not have any other gods before me. But Aaron didn't follow that. Neither did the people. And so coming back to Exodus 32, the story continues on in verse 7. The Lord says to Moses, go get down For your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. You know, that's one of those things that we talk about a lot when we're married and you have kids. You know, the the kids are always my wife's kids unless they're doing something bad. And then they're dad's kids. You know, what did dad teach them to do? You know, and uh, to be perfectly honest, it also works the other way around. They're my kids until they've done something bad. And they're like, babe, your son, do you know what he did today? (laughs) And that's, that's what's taking place here. He, God is talking to Moses and he tells him, look, you need to go back down there for your people that you brought out of the land of Egypt. They're defiling themselves. They have totally blown it. 
They've turned aside quickly in verse 8, out of the way which I commanded them. Turned aside quickly. Forty days they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. I mean, that's an intense thing to, to be talking to God. And, and God says, you know what? I've had it. I have just had it up to here. I'm done with them. I'm just, just step out of the way, Moses, because I'm going to wipe them all out, and we're going to start over from scratch with you. You know, on the one hand... As a, as a selfish individual, I'm sure, it, I mean, it had to have crossed Moses' mind that, you know, that maybe that's not such a bad idea, God. You know, if, we, if you're going to start it over, what better place to start than right here, you know, with me? You know, I'm sure that that's a thought process because, let's be honest, I think all of us would have had at least the thought cross our mind. We hopefully would have quickly progressed to what Moses does and just beg on behalf of the people. But the thought had to at least cross his mind. But Moses really was a good leader who really, really had the best interests of the people at heart. Because in verse 11, Moses pleads with the Lord his God and he says, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And so the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. And for us, we, we see that word and we see relent. You know, in other translations, it says repent, to turn away from what he had desired to do. And some people get the wrong understanding, the wrong impression there, that God changed his mind. That God somehow, you know, God was like, this is what's going to happen. And then Moses was able to say, you know what, no, this is, this is a better way. I truly believe that this was a test for Moses. That this was a test for Moses. That God already knew beforehand what he was going to do and how he was going to do it. But God was testing. He was checking to see where Moses was at. Not because God didn't know, but so that Moses would know where Moses was at. So many times in our lives, we come into situations like that, where I truly believe that God allows us to go through things so that we will understand how great he is and how great our need and dependence upon him has to be. So many times we go through things so that we can learn a lesson. Not because God needed to change his mind or God wanted to see how this was going to work out or because God was unsure, but to give us a greater confidence, not in ourselves, but a greater confidence in the God who works in and through us. And I believe that that's what was taking place here with Moses. And Moses passed the test. And so Moses, it continues on in verse 15, Moses turned and went down from the mountain and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. On the one side and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. 
I was listening to a Bible study the other night, and the, the pastor was talking about, I wonder what a handwriting analyst would have to say about those tablets. You know how they can tell you all these different things as you write something, and they, oh, well, you must be a sentimental person because of the way that you circle your S and the way you dot your I, and, well, you must be a murderer because that's a violent crossing of the T, and all these other things that they can do. Like, imagine having a copy of that and say, okay, so what, what do you get from this? Like, who, who do you think wrote this one? But to actually have the hand of God, it was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. In verse 17, it says, When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But Moses said, It is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. And Moses was not just discerning, Moses was believing. Moses was trusting because God had already told him what was taking place. And so in verse 19, so it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot and he cast the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. The only person to have ever broken all Ten Commandments at one time. Pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. But he breaks them at the foot of the mountain. And then in verse 20, he took the calf which they had made. He burned it in the fire, he ground it to powder, he scattered it on the water, and then he made the children of Israel drink it. I mean, Moses was a pretty intense dude. Like, some of the things that, that he came up with were just really, really hardcore. He broke the calf, he burned it in the fire, he ground it into powder, and then he made them drink it in their water. Like, just to, in case you might have forgotten, we're just going to do all of these things so that you will never forget how dumb that was what you did yesterday. I mean, that was Moses. It was, you know, taking their head and just sticking it in the, the sin. But it was a way for them to always remember. And so it was that, that he did all these things. And then in verse 21, it says, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? And I, I think that the question was probably in the sense of, what could have possibly happened? Like, how did they torture you? How did they, they just, what, were they going to kill you? Like, what could have possibly happened between these people and you that you decided that you were going to lead them into this stupidity? Like, what could have possibly happened? Because it, it was. It was a grave sin. It was a grave sin. And Aaron had not only led the people away from God, but he had led them directly to the enemy directly into sin. In another translation, the NLT, verse 6 reads, The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings, and after this they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. They indulged in pagan revelry. That could be a whole lot of different things, and, and we don't know exactly what that means, but that was a whole lot of bad stuff. Okay, when, when you start talking about pagan, it was bad enough. Revelry and pagan, that was really, really bad, and there was a lot of it taking place. And so Moses is asking him, what happened? You were supposed to be the leader. You're supposed to be the alpha. You're supposed to be the one in charge, the one that people are going to follow, the one that people are going to listen to. People a lot of times want to be a leader. They want to be somebody that, that others will follow after. And they'll tell you even, oh, I, I'm, a, I'm a leader of this, or I'm a leader of that, or, or I'm a, an alpha male, or an alpha female, or all these different things. And so often, you look behind them, and there's nobody following them. 
Well, that's a dead giveaway that they're not what they said they were. But then you have some people on the other side of the spectrum that really don't want to be the leader. They don't want to be the alpha. But for whatever reason, God has ordained it for them to be somebody that people look to. And I really believe that that was Aaron. I don't think Aaron wanted this this responsibility. I don't think Aaron thought he was ready for this responsibility. And so Aaron goes through and he leads them into this great sin and he compounds it by his response. So Aaron said in verse 22, Do not let the anger of my Lord, he's talking about Moses, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. Like what is the number one worst thing that you could ever do as a leader? Blame everybody else. Like that's, that's not the way that it works. But that's the first thing that he does. It's where he starts. You know the people. They, they want to do evil. Like how could I stop them? For they said to me in verse 23, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we did not know what has become of him. And so I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. And so they gave it to me, and I cast it in the fire, and this calf came out. That's literally what he said. I, I don't know what happened. They, they told me, and I, I got fearful. And, and so I said, look, just give me the gold, and we'll throw it in the fire. I, I don't know what he would have expected. Like, even the lie doesn't make sense. But, but that I threw it all in the fire, and out came a calf. Like, it, was, it was a miracle, so it must have been God. We have so many things that take place like this nowadays. You know, and we, some of the, the most just insane things take place in churches across America today. And I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure why it is that all these things seem to happen mostly in America. But you have gold dust, gold dust falling from the, the rafters. And that when the Spirit of God has come upon you, the way that you know that you are empowered by the Holy Spirit is that you'll be able to look on your shoulder and you'll see the gold dust. Where do you get that from? Like the only time that I see anything close to that was a little while ago when Moses ground up the calf and then he made him drink it in the water as a reminder that that was bad. But they have this. That the Holy Spirit has descended upon this place because we saw feathers falling from the, the ceiling. What? I mean, I'm pretty sure that God knows how to make an angel not shed feathers like i mean there's no need for that and if he can do that for an angel then the holy spirit you don't think the holy spirit can hang on to his feathers like if he has them just the foolishness and that that was aaron yeah i don't know what happened I, i threw it all in there and then out came the calf and so it must have been god and so all of these people followed him down this road All these people followed him down this road. Now in verse 25, Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them. That is a super, super, super important part of all of our ministries. Every single one of us, part of our ministry before the Lord and unto our brothers and sisters in Christ and even unto the unsaved, is to restrain them from themselves. To restrain them from themselves. I am so blessed when people come and restrain me from myself. When someone comes up and says, you know what, I I see what you're doing there, and this is a bad idea, okay? This is not biblical, or there's a better way to do, do this, or you know what, I've done that, and this is how it ended up. However it plays out, I am so blessed when people are willing to do that for me. And I desire to do that for others. 
And there was a time in my life when I desired to do that for others just for the joy of being able to tell them you're wrong. And I've grown out of that, I think. I've grown into a place where I really, truly desire the best for others. But that's a super, super crucial, important part of our ministry before the Lord. It says Aaron had not restrained them. They were unrestrained because Aaron had fallen asleep on the job. It says Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And so now we're going to start to see the beginning of the consequences. The beginning of how all of these things are going to end up. Not just for Aaron, because Aaron's going to have to live with what happens. But for all of the people that now get the direct brunt of the consequences. So what are those consequences? In verse 26, Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and he said, Whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. All the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And so he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp. And let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. And then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day, for every man has opposed his son and his brother. What a tremendous weight to have to carry around. To be the leader that was responsible for 3,000 deaths of your own friends and family, of people that you knew. This wasn't just the deaths of an enemy, the deaths on a battlefield in a war. These were people that he knew. It would be like coming here and and knowing all the people that come to this church and knowing that half of them were going to die. It wasn't that many, but but just to to give you that understanding that half of you were going to die and that that those that that did the killing were going to be here in this room and they were going to be following God's orders because of something that, that maybe the pastoral staff had done. Maybe, maybe it was something that, that I had done in leading worship or that Pastor Charlie had done in, in teaching from the pulpit or, or that it was a bad counseling or, or whatever it was, that we had done something and it had caused the death of so many people in the congregation. Like, how do you recover from that? But I would suggest to you that this happened before Aaron was ever brought into that promoted ministry, if you will, of being the first high priest of Israel. I mean, what a mind-blowing thing that is to think about. That Aaron had been responsible for all of this stuff, and yet God still wanted to use him. And God still did use him tremendously. But someone else had to come in and fix Aaron's mistake, and it cost roughly 3,000 lives. And so Aaron, again, surprisingly enough, he was not disqualified from ministry, but he actually was promoted by God. The understanding for us as we, we begin to, to come towards the end tonight is that ministry in God, in his kingdom, involves a lot of imperfection. Not because of anything that he brings, but because of everything that we are. Ministry involves a lot of imperfection. Because he's working through imperfect people. 
And so what does that mean? How do we get past all of those imperfections? How do we get past those failures? Maybe even in the course of leading others, how do we get back to a place where we can responsibly lead them again? We must be partakers of God's grace and his mercy before partaking in any act of ministry before God. Any act of ministry. Whether that's walking out the door and just the people that you interact with on the way out, whether that's sharing the gospel directly in detail with another person, whether that's the example of your life, whatever the case may be, all of those things, before you can do any of those things rightly, we have to be partakers of God's grace and mercy intimately. And it has to be a constant and continual thing. God already knew what Aaron was going to do before he gave Moses the, the instructions for his consecration. God already knew what he was getting before he called each one of us into his family. But now we're just going to kind of quickly go through Exodus chapter 29. So just in the chronological order of things, in the numerical value, 29 comes before 32. But in reality, these were the instructions that God gave to Moses in chapter 29 that had not taken place yet. So Moses comes down after the 40 days. This was part of the 40 days. And later on, we read in Leviticus that this actually does take place. But in Exodus 29, it's a little bit more concise. And so beginning in verse 1, it says, This is what you shall do to them, to hallow them for ministering to me as priests. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. You shall make them of wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket with the bull and the two rams. And then it says, Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron, and the robe of the ephod, the ephod and the breastplate, and gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. And you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head, and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them, and you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual state, so you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. The first thing here is that this is public. This is a very, very public thing that's taking place. It says, you shall bring them to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall wash them with water. In Leviticus, when this actually takes place, we see that you call all the people up to the tabernacle of meeting, and then you bring them up to the door in front of everybody. It's almost like having them on stage. And then they go through this washing, this cleansing. And so the, that's the first thing, is that, that our devotion to God, our consecration to God, has to be a public thing. It can't be something that we hide in a closet when it suits us. It can't be something that we shirk away from when somebody raises even the slightest bit of irritation or, or maybe humor at us being a child of God. It has to be a public thing. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 33, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. It is a public thing. Our consecration, our being set apart and sanctified for the work of ministry, for the use of God, that has to be a public thing. But then in verse 10, he goes on and he starts talking about the sin offering. And, and this is the thing that, there's a lot of things that, that I hope you take from it tonight, but, but this is one of those mental pictures 
that I think will help all of us do a much better job of trying to be holy. In verse 10 it says, You shall also have the bull brought before the tabernacle of meeting, and Aaron and his son shall put their hands on the head of the bull. So at this point the bull is still alive. So they bring the bull in to the tabernacle of meeting, and Aaron and his sons have to place their hands on the head of this living, breathing animal. They place their hands on his head. And then it says, You shall kill the bull before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. I mean, I, I've, I've never been hunting. I, the, the thought of hunting excites me. Like, I, I, I enjoy, you know, I, I guess the easiest way to put it, and I, I know that it's probably crude to some of you. Again, I've never been hunting, so don't hold this against me, but it's like moving target practice. So I, 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 that's the way I think of it. And, I, and that part excites me because I, I love to shoot, and so to shoot a moving target, that would be great. The thing that precludes me, that keeps me from going hunting is having to actually see the animal die and then having to do something with that afterwards. Like, to me, that, that's just too much. I don't know that I could handle that. And some of you hunters are thinking, what a pansy. But that's just me, okay? Like, I have a hard time with that, okay? And so that's why this is very, very meaningful for me because, I, to me, if I knew that every time that I sinned that I was going to have to go and offer this sacrifice, this burnt offering unto the Lord, this sin offering, and that one of the things, one of the requirements for this offering was that the priest was going to kill the animal not only right in front of me, but that I was going to have to have my hand on the animal as it was being killed, that's just an intense thing to think about. I mean, to think about this animal, I don't care how quickly or smoothly or adeptly you are at doing it, there's got to be at least a moment of pain, probably some noises. And not to be funny, I mean, this is really, I'm, I'm sure that, that there are noises that take place. And not to get overly graphic, but even if it's just the gurgling of the blood and, and things that are taking place as this animal is dying, that's not a, a picture that, that I think I could let go of. That's something that would probably stay with me. And I think that that was part of the purpose, is to understand the gravity, the weight of our sin. The weight of our sin, that it actually cost blood, literally cost life to pay for our sin. We talk about the crucifixion. We talk about everything that Jesus endured on the cross, but also leading up to the cross. And I'll, I'll be honest, until I had actually done a really in-depth study of that, I never fully grasped it. Like, yeah, I, yeah he died. He, and and it, that was big, and I got that. You know, my son understands that at the age of three. My daughter at the age of five, they get that. They understand. It's one of the things that they pray, actually, at night on their own. They, they pray, and, and they thank God for forgiving their sins, for dying on the cross. But to really understand what he went through, the gravity, the weight of our sin, and how much it really cost to be conscious and mindful of that as we're sinning, like that's enough to redirect us probably 90% of the time, if not all the time. But we just let that thing slip away. We let it slip away. But this is why. So in verse 11, you shall kill the bull before the Lord by the tabernacle of meeting. And then you shall take some of the blood of the bull and you put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And you pour all the blood beside the base of the altar. 
And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them, and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull with its skin and its offal, its, its innards, its intestines, you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. So not only did you have to go through the, the, the trauma of watching and feeling as this animal is put to death, but then you see the blood being put in all these different places. You see the blood. You can smell the blood. Like this is a, all your senses being activated as a reminder of the weight of your sin. The payment for sin is a painful and bloody thing. To be mindful of that. But also to, to see the understanding here that sin is shameful and it needs to be properly removed and disposed of from our lives. There was a method, there was a process. So there were certain things that would be burned on the altar and those were the things that were pleasing unto God. But everything else was taken outside the camp and burned as refuse. And that's what it is for us. The sin, we can't just say, well, I'm going to give it up to God and then hold on to it. Keep it in our lives. When we say and we really want it to happen, we have to take that sin and remove it from our lives. It has to be moved out. It can no longer be a part of us, a part of who we are. Part of the reason for that is that it continues to come back and to bite us. It continues to come back and, and to use this picture, picture here, it continues to, to cause us to be dirty, to be smelly, to hold on to those things. I mean, it's, it's useless. It is not fruitful. It is not good for anything. And we know it, but we still do it. But that's the picture that's given here, that sin is shameful. It needs to be properly removed. The flesh, the skin, the guts, all those things were burned outside the camp. And the extra picture there is that they were cleansed from the inside out. It's another song that we sing. And the songs that we sing are, are rooted in, in the Word of God. That we would be cleansed from the inside out. Purify my heart before you purify my body. Purify my heart. The next thing in verses 15 through 18 is a burnt offering. It says, You shall also take one ram, and Aaron and his son shall put their hands on the head of the ram. And again, they go through the same process. You shall kill the ram. You shall take its blood and sprinkle it all around on the altar. And then you shall cut the ram in pieces, wash its entrails and its legs, and put them with its pieces and with its head. And you shall burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering unto the Lord, a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Our obedience and service before God, when it's done according to God's plan, is a sweet and a beautiful thing in his eyes. It's a sweet and a beautiful thing in his eyes. But the things that we give to God have to be cleansed in the washing water of his word. It's not enough for us to say, well, this is what I want to give you, God. We need to give God what God asks for. You know, it's just a, a simple mental picture. You know, especially as little kids, we just went through Christmas and really, really trying hard to instill in my daughter especially because of just the age that she's at that, you know, just because you didn't get what you asked for, you still need to be thankful that you got something. But it means so much more to all of us, but especially to a child, it means so much more when they get what they asked for. 
because it shows the forethought, it shows the, the love, the passion, all the different words that you could use. Now you take that same image and you talk about what does God ask for? We talked about it earlier. God asked for us to be holy because he's called us and he is holy. It's part of our reasonable service, reasonable sacrifice before God. That we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple of God. Not to defile our bodies, not just in, in the things that we eat, but just in the way that we live our lives. These are the things that God asked for, and those things, they're costly. It's a difficult thing. They're costly, but that's why it is so meaningful when we do that for the Lord. Then the next thing in verses 19 through 21 is a consecration offering. It says, You shall also take the other ram, and Aaron and his son shall put their hands on the head of the ram. You shall kill the ram and take some of its blood. And notice where this ram's blood is put. You shall put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, and on the tip on the right ear of his sons, on the thumb of their right hand, and on the big toe of their right foot, and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar. And you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments, on his sons and on the garments of his sons with him. And he and his garments shall be hallowed or consecrated or set apart and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And so the first thing is that they put it on the ear. The mental picture for us, for us the visual image, is to be close to God, to be able to hear his voice. So you, you put it on your ear, that your ear would be consecrated to the voice of the Lord. The second thing is the thumb of your right hand, the side of strength, that everything that you put your hand to would be consecrated and holy unto God, that everything that we do would be consecrated and holy unto God. And then on the big toe of your right foot, as you go, wherever you go, on every path that you take, that it would be consecrated and holy to the Lord. Then in all we do, we bring him glory and honor. And then he says, you shall take some of the blood that's on the altar and some of the anointing oil, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit, and you shall sprinkle it on Aaron on his garments, and he and his garments shall be hallowed and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And for us, again, the mental picture, the visual image, that the blood of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit would be sprinkled throughout every area and aspect of our lives, that we would be covered in it that everything would bring glory to God. And then the last thing in verses 22 through 28, he shall also take the fat of the ram, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, the two kidneys and the fat on them, the right thigh, for it is a ram of consecration, one loaf of bread, one cake made with oil, and one wafer from the basket of the unleavened bread that is before the Lord. And you should put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons. And you shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. And so all of these things, to us, some of these things don't mean as much. But for them, the understanding was that these were the best parts. And you took the best parts of this offering and you presented them before the Lord. That's what you would do when you would offer them up. When you would wave them before the Lord, you were presenting the best that you had to offer unto the Lord. Knowing that it wasn't enough, knowing that you aren't worthy, knowing that there is so much that still has to be corrected in your life, but you are offering everything that you are unto the Lord. It's a picture that, that happens a lot of times. You'll see it. Some of you already do it in worship, and others might wonder why people do that. Why do you have your hands up like that in worship? It is an offering. It's a visual representation of offering yourself unto the Lord, consecrating yourself that you want to give everything that you are in worship and adoration to the Lord. 
And the second ram was first used to consecrate all of the outward parts. This ram that now we're offering up all of the best parts to, this was the same ram whose blood was used to consecrate your ear, to consecrate your thumb, to consecrate your, your foot, and everything sprinkled over everything that you are. So we take the best parts of what we are and we give our best, we give our all to Jesus Christ. And then the last thing is, then you shall take the breast, in verse 26, of the ram of Aaron's consecration, wave it as a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. This is what they would eat because this consecration process took seven days. And so this was the portion that Aaron and his sons would keep for themselves to eat and to, to sustain themselves for this seven-day period. And so this, at first, it was to offer up everything after we'd consecrated ourselves to the Lord outwardly, but then inwardly as well because then they would eat it. And as they would eat it, that's a, a picture of something that's very personal. You know, without being overly graphic about it, nobody else can eat for you, right? I mean, that, that's something that's a very, very individual thing. Like you, and if it's not, that's just weird. You know, Lady and the Tramp stuff, that, that stuff doesn't work if you're not a dog. You know, the, the whole, like, let's suck the, the spaghetti noodle together. It's just awkward. Some of you guys actually know what I'm talking about. You guys have either been kids or you have kids. The rest of you, I don't know what's wrong with you. But eating is a very, very personal, individual, and intimate thing. And that's what it, that last part has to be for us. And as we spend time with the Lord, we have to be doing it more than just when we're gathered together in public with other people. also has to take place intimately and individually. So just to kind of wrap all the things up, we are all called to minister on behalf of the kingdom of God, on behalf of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are all called to be part of that royal and holy priesthood. Partaking in that ministry requires sacrifice, and it requires a daily and a constant sacrifice. Sacrificing ourselves, laying aside our flesh to be able to more fully take hold of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then the, the third thing is that our sin is a very, very heavy thing. Again, like of all the visual pictures that I could give you tonight, that is the one that I really, really hope stays with us, all of us. That our sin is a very costly thing. Now, it's not to say that we re-crucify Christ every time we sin because that's not the way it works. He died once and, and that was it. That was enough for everyone and for every sin that we will ever commit. But to remember that that sin that we're about to commit is part of the reason that he had to go through that. Be mindful of that. But then the last thing, to end it with that, that upper, the greatness of our God and his mercy far outweighs any of the sins that we have committed. The greatness of our God and his mercy and his love towards us far outweighs any of the sins that we have ever committed. So if you find yourself in that place today where you know that your life is not right, don't be condemned. Be convicted, but don't be condemned. Understand that, that Aaron was literally the cause of nearly 3,000 lives being lost. And yet immediately following that, God still called him into ministry in a greater sense. To minister to still the whole nation of Israel for, for a long time to come. So if you find yourself in that place where you know you're not right, take tonight and get right.
Understand that God wants you not only to be right, but God wants you to be used. God wants to do great and amazing and awesome things, not just in you, not just for you, but through you. But you have to get right. have to get right with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the way that you speak to our hearts. And Lord, I pray that you, you've spoken to us tonight. I pray, Father, that, that if there's anything that we're holding on to, the things that we know are not right, the things that we know need to get changed and corrected in our lives, I pray, Lord, that tonight would be that opportunity for us to lay them down at your feet and, Lord, to, to just get back on that right track, to get back in that rightness of fellowship, that rightness in our relationship with you, and we would be able to experience just the fullness of joy that we can have in our relationship with you. Lord, I pray for each one of us here that you would just continually fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would be truly consecrated, set apart unto you for the work of ministry, and that you would be able to use us as vessels to bring many others into the kingdom and into the family of Christ. And so, Lord, we just give you this time. We give you all the praise, glory, and honor. We ask and pray all these things.